Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Translators are relied upon in war zones at the United Nations when reporting in foreign countries. In these circumstances, professional translators are employed. But informal translation takes place every day in bilingual households, especially in immigrant households. Many of us who grew up where two languages were spoken are familiar with this experience. In my case, my mother jokes to her doctors that I'm her translator. She speaks and understands English well enough, but is much more proficient and comfortable speaking Spanish. And sometimes she'll miss important parts of a conversation because of the language obstacle. There are many homes where immigrant heads of households either don't speak or struggle with English, and their U.S.-raised English-speaking children are entrusted with translating often very grown-up situations for their families. This is known as language brokering, and I, and probably you, are a language broker. Today, we're talking to Belém López, an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her research focuses on informal translation experiences in bilingual individuals and the children of immigrants. López here further explains language brokering and how she came to make it the focus of her academic career. So language brokering, I think, can be defined as an informal translation practice typically found in language context situations. So it could be where there's a dominant language like in the U.S. where English is kind of the language that we conduct business in, that government is conducted. And then you may have immigrant groups or groups who speak other languages like we'll use Spanish, for example. People come in contact with English, but they don't necessarily speak it. So they need someone to translate. So language brokering typically falls upon children of immigrants or children of refugees who are acquiring or learning the dominant language. In the U.S., that would be English. And at home, maybe they speak Spanish. So they serve as sort of cultural intermediaries, but also linguistic intermediaries or translators between someone who speaks English and maybe their parents or grandparents who speak Spanish. So similar to you, Norma, I had no idea language brokering was a field of study or that language brokering had a name. I'm a daughter of Mexican immigrants. And similar to what you were saying about your your mother, where, you know, she understands English, but she feels more confident in Spanish. My own mother is the exact same way. And I grew up translating for both of my parents. For my mom, it was a lot of like spoken translation, like going to the bank and speaking with the teller. And for my dad, it was a lot of written translation. Like we'd get something in the mail and, you know, he'd be like, mija, que dice esto? Like, because he could read it, but he wanted me to like make sure that he understood it. So I just thought this was something that fell upon, you know, being the oldest daughter in a Mexican immigrant household that I was like, oh, this is this is just my my responsibility because I'm going to school. I'm learning English. It is what it is. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school that my wonderful, super supportive uh, graduate advisor, Dr. Jotz Navad, handed me an article about language brokering. She found out I was bilingual and she was like, are you a language broker? And I was like, what? What's, what's that? And then she handed me an article when I joined her lab and I was like, oh my gosh, this is my experience. 
I've done this my whole life. Actually, I still do this. I talk to my mom every day and usually there's something that she got in the mail and she'll take a picture of it and send it to me and be like, Mija, ¿qué dice esto? Like, can you explain this? That's kind of what got me started in it. It also gave me the opportunity to learn about myself. I had never read papers on language brokering. I'd read things on bilinguals and that was kind of related to my experience growing up, but it wasn't until I really got to dive into the literature on language brokering that I really got to learn about my own experiences. You know, language brokering is something that I identify as. I am a language broker and I continue to broker both for my parents and other family members. And while growing up, it was quite frustrating at times. I, I think that there's more that we can learn a- about the experience. Well, I'm curious as to whether you get that same reaction that you had when you teach your students about language brokering, if they have some similar stories that they share. Absolutely. I love when I get to teach about language brokering and I ask students, have you ever been a language broker? And students kind of have this puzzled look on their face, similar to when I was asked, are you a language broker? And then I usually show a meme of Baby Yoda (laughs) translating for their parents and my students are like oh I do that all the time I didn't know it had a name and seeing the sort of spark in their eye where it's like oh my experiences are part of research people are interested in what I do at home I just thought it was you know something I did for my mom you're talking about bilingualism earlier and studies now show that people who are bilingual tend to achieve more academically, and studies have also shown that language brokers have that same ability, not just because they speak both languages, but because they also have the ability to make that informal translation in the moment, unlike formal translators you'll see at the UN, you know, these informal translators who are language brokers, they're conducting they're doing that translation in real time. Definitely. So I do think that there are some positive outcomes to language brokering. And in some of my work, I, I see that there's more fluidity in in the ways that uh, language brokers are able to access meaning across both Spanish and English, where maybe there's like a closer connection between their two languages in their mental representation of the languages. So I think that there, cognitively and linguistically, there are maybe some positive outcomes. But I also want to add a little caveat that, you know, language brokers are kind of just pushed into these situations because people who don't speak English or might be immigrants that are starting to develop English abilities aren't provided with the resources that they need. I also want to highlight that it can be quite stressful. And language brokering happens because, you know, the U.S. doesn't necessarily provide the resources that immigrant communities or communities that don't speak English need. So what do parents do? They rely on their children, which is not necessarily the best thing to do in some instances. And some of these children can be very young and they're having to deal with very grown up situations when maybe they have to go to the driver's license office with their parent or in the case of immigrant families where they have to fill out immigration papers. Yeah. So filling out immigration papers or going to a doctor's office. There have been studies where they interview folks and a child may have to tell their parent like they have cancer or the child ends up having to bear the emotional weight that's going on. And in an adult-like situation, as an adult myself, there are situations that figuring out what 
internet plan is the best one for me can be a little stressful. Now imagine asking a child that's like six or seven years old, who's still developing cognitively to take on these sort of adult-like tasks. I'll repeat again, while there are some positive outcomes to language brokering, it can be quite stressful and emotional, and that can have some long-term repercussions that, that may not be quite as beneficial. Do you think that maybe in the long term, though, that some of these people who are sort of pushed into becoming language brokers for their older relatives, that perhaps something positive eventually did come out of it? Definitely. And I actually have a paper where, you know, we asked some college age students, what is something that, you know, your language brokering experience gave you now as a young adult? And a lot of them said, you know, I'm more confident because I have this experience. I, if I see someone having trouble at a grocery store, I'll step in and translate for them. So, you know, it's not all bad and it's not all good, unfortunately. But I do think that they're different contexts of language brokering experiences that lead to different outcomes. And I'll bring up my colleague, Dr. Su Young Kim at UT Austin, who has started to really work on these profiles of language brokering that take into account how the language broker feels about their language brokering experience, as well as how confident they are in their language abilities. And she's been able to really find how there's different types of language brokering experiences that lead to different outcomes. So I think future research will have to really take a look at these different contexts because just because someone language is a language broker doesn't mean that they're going to have a positive experience, but it also doesn't mean that they're going to have a negative experience. So it really depends on a lot of different contextual factors. I'm curious whether anything has been published or anything has been researched into the people for whom the broker is translating, the non-English speaker. I'm assuming that there's got to be some almost a sense of shame and not being able to handle day-to-day business and instead handing those responsibilities over to oftentimes a very young child. Definitely. A, a parent asking their child, can you help me fill this form out? What that must do to a parent or what that must do to an adult words. It's things that if you speak the language, you kind of take for granted. But if you don't understand something, the person in your closest vicinity that you're asking for help for might be your own child. We see this sort of role reversal with language brokering. It can also be stressful and emotional for the parents where they're, I'm not a parent myself, but I imagine parents are thinking, I'm here to provide for my child, but here I am asking my child for something. Belém López is an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. We're talking about language brokering. When we come back, some language brokers might run into obstacles when attempting to translate something that makes sense in one language, but not the other. There's uh, the Mexican idiom, importarle un pepino, which <laughs> literally word for word translates to care a cucumber. But if English, if I were to say, oh, to care a cucumber, people are going to give me funny looks. <laughs> Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. If you're bilingual, you've probably told jokes in one language that don't quite translate to the other. For example, in Spanish, ¿Cuál es la fruta que más se ríe? 
What is the fruit that laughs the most? La naranja, ha ha! You lose the joke in English. The word orange does not sound like laughter. Similarly, there are phrases in English that don't have much meaning in any other language, like cold turkey or gobsmacked, or even old school. People in bilingual or immigrant households often have to navigate what's translatable and what's not to their non-English speaking parent or family member. These so-called language brokers are switching from one language to another in real time, trying to navigate linguistic and even cultural hurdles when navigating their parents through a driver's license application or a doctor's appointment or a trip to the pharmacy. Belém López is an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She gives us some more examples of the difficulties language brokers often encounter in their everyday lives. I like to use the example of how in you know Spanish we have the formal usted if you speak a Mexican variety of Spanish, but in English that doesn't really exist. So when you're translating something for your parents. I would say you really have to take into account like what might be said in English, and then you reformulate it in such a way in Spanish that you're still getting across the formality. If someone says like, "Oh, your mom should do this," you can't be like, "Mama, haz esto." At least my mother would probably be like, "What? Why are you talking <laughs> to me that way?" Um, so you have to switch the sort of from an informal register to a, a formal register. Something I bring up a lot with my students is having to translate. American systems to parents. I like to use the example of filling out FAFSA forms once you're going to college. That would be the, so financial aid forms. Yeah, so like financial aid forms. I remember having to explain to my parents that a Pell Grant wasn't a loan because my parents thought like, no, don't get loans. But estamos, you're going to be you know in debt forever. But I was like, no, mom, this is money from the government that I don't have to pay back. And having to really sit down with them and interpret, like, no, it's kind of like a beca, like, because that's something that she understood, but a scholarship, held, a scholarship, right? Like, but having to really sort of mediate what that means, because you know, my parents are from Mexico, and, and they're like, unless it's a, a scholarship, then you shouldn't get it, you know, because student loans, blah blah blah. But another thing that I think is interesting that that you've written about is. Idioms, and I think this is something that English speakers we don't really think much of when you have to translate. But I'm assuming idioms and jokes are kind of the same way. They rely on knowledge of one language that doesn't necessarily translate to the other. So, can you give us some examples of that? I really like idioms and humor, but sometimes idioms are not translatable. Like uh, there's uh, the Mexican idiom "importarle un pepino." <laughs> which literally word for word translates to care a cucumber. But if English, if I were to say, oh, to care a cucumber, people are going to give me funny looks. <laughs> But if I say it in Spanish, oh, I have to do laundry, pero me importa un pepino. Someone who speaks Spanish would be like, oh, yeah, she doesn't care to do laundry right now. And so what's interesting about... It's kind of like, 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 don't give a hoot, right? Yeah, I don't give... Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, I don't give a hoot, like, eh, whatever. But what I, I like about idioms is that they are cultural, but they're also linguistic. So it, for me, it was a neat way to kind of look at language brokers and how language brokering kind of let them go across languages, even with idioms, because research suggests that idioms are very rooted in 
the language in which they occur. So if someone saw to care a cucumber and then they saw importarle un pepino, if their English and Spanish are completely separated in sort of the, the bilingual mind, they would see those as two very different phrases. But what I find with language brokers in particular is that if they saw to care a cucumber and importarle un pepino, that they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. One of the things you've written about is how broadly language brokering is studied. It's studied in sociology, education, law, communication, health, and now psychological studies are emerging. What are we learning in sort of these different fields about language brokering? You'd think it maybe would just be a linguistic field, but it goes far beyond that. That's an excellent question. I I think language brokering is an experience that goes beyond just one discipline because you can look at the emotional effects of language brokering as well as psychological effects, which people have been looking at for, I would say, um, over 30 years. It's political, but there's also work in, you can look at the use of language brokers even in medical settings. My colleague, Glenn Martinez, who's now at University of Texas, San Antonio, he's done some work uh, actually in the Valley where certified nurse assistants, LVNs, and other uh, medical employees in like hospitals are pulled from their jobs to serve as informal translators because they speak Spanish in a predominantly Spanish-speaking community. So I think we still have a lot to learn about language brokering because one, there are different types of language brokering experiences. But the experience is not just linguistic and not just cognitive, but it's social, emotional, and it's also political. In medical settings, there's the class standards that uh, stipulate that in medical settings, if someone doesn't speak the language of, say, the doctors or in the U.S., it's English, you have to provide culturally and linguistically relevant information. So language brokering is also a political experience because if people adhere to the class standards in medical settings, then we wouldn't have language brokering experiences. And, you know, it's also a question on equity. If someone is in a situation where they're not understanding the information that they're receiving, why aren't we able to provide the resources for them to understand or provide, you know, a translator or an interpreter? Well, this is really interesting because I'm I'm curious as to maybe what the health outcomes might be of people who are being language brokered, because if you are a predominantly, again, we'll use Spanish, if you're a predominantly Spanish speaker, and you don't feel comfortable communicating with your doctor, or you don't feel comfortable bringing your child to translate for you to your doctor, you're not going to get the health care that you need. So I'm assuming that there's got to be some sort of a disparity between these non-English speaking populations in the U.S. Definitely. So there are a lot of like sort of health literacy and uh, linguistic disparities related to health. I remember reading a paper on people who don't receive medical information in the language that they're most comfortable in, that there's less likely of them adhering to medical instructions, which might be, you know, dosage, uh, taking their medicine every day, or making sure to come back to follow-up appointments. So I think not having access, linguistic access in health settings is going to lead to a lot of disparities, which is really unfortunate because we know Latinos in the U.S. already bear the brunt of a lot of 
uh, health inequities. Have you found that maybe these translation apps are helping language brokers with their translations? You know, I haven't looked at that specifically, but anecdotally, my students have told me that they'll use Google Translate. And I think that's a great field of study. But I also, you know, sometimes technology doesn't translate things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 100%. But I, I think that's something that we should begin to look at. How do things like Google Translate help? Or I don't know if there's other, I'm sure there are other apps that folks have devised. Um, you know, back in my day, we had a bilingual dictionary. So when I didn't know a word, I, you know, would open my parents' bilingual dictionary and try to find it and see if the, what the Spanish equivalent was. Belém López is an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's director of the LAMA Lab, Latinx's Language and Mexican-American Studies Lab. It's a psycholinguistic and sociolinguistic laboratory that examines the long-term outcomes of language brokering experiences. Thanks for joining us this week on Fronteras. You can find the show online at tpr.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Maria Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our digital content producer is Brie Kirkham. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio.